I love that piece by Madeline de Engel. Because the character of it is exactly the character of the prologue in the Gospel of John. It is a running conversation between the personal and the cosmic, between the intimate and the ultimate. Now, it is very appropriate that we would start our year-long study of the Gospel of John with this beginning at the new year of a study right after Christmas where we concentrate on the personal, the intimate, you know, <clears throat> sometimes a little cutesy, but always personal, heart-rendering, and the coming epiphany, which is the celebration of the light dawning on the whole world, represented by the wise men who did not yet have a personal God, but were seeking a personal God. Those representatives of knowledge. And so, here we are, about to study the Gospel of John, with the deepest words that have ever been written in all of literature. Now, I know coming into this <laughs> that this is a challenge for anybody, let alone people who have just gone through the holidays. I watched you coming in this morning. You're tired, aren't you? <laughs> I know you are. I, for some reason, holidays wear you out more than work much, you know, does a lot of times. They wear me out. I'm tired. I'm, I know I'm tired because this morning I was walking in and, and uh, I got under a couple of lamps in the parking lot and I looked down and I had two completely different shoes on. They weren't even close. They didn't even, they weren't the same color. But that's not how I knew I was tired. How I knew I was tired is, I didn't care. <clears throat> I thought maybe I, you know, I, I had second thoughts about calling back and saying, hey, would you bring me my other shoe? I, I really, uh, but, but the point is, you know you're tired when you don't care about the stuff you probably ought to care about. And I know some of you are there right now, but you know what? You got your bodies in the right place, and that's good. That's good. You've been obedient. You got your bodies where you, where you could hear the one who will help you care. Now, if you will just allow me a few minutes of introducing the introduction to you. You see, these opening verses of the Gospel of John are really a prologue, or for those of you who are musicians, an overture. You know that there is a piece that precedes the main body of a work that announces its tone and the themes that are be, to be developed more fully in the body of the work. And that's exactly what the opening verses of John do. It is the prologue that, that announces the, the tone and the themes that we will be developing for the rest of the year. But there's something more to this prologue. <clears throat> this prologue was really written as a hymn. You can tell because of its poetic nature. You can tell because much of our Christology, that which we believe about Christ, came from these verses. Um, these verses take us back farther than Genesis. Genesis begins with the creation of the space-time world. In the beginning, God created. Here, we go way back further than that, before there was any time. And so there is this hymn that fits, watch this, both the Jewish understanding and the Gentile understanding. It fits really all cultures. 
it was a custom in the Roman Empire, as a matter of fact, before a Roman drama, to sing a hymn to the emperor of Rome. This is essentially what is being done at the beginning of the Gospel of John. A hymn is being sung to the emperor of the universe. So that, so that personal honor may be accumulated toward him. And so that what happens afterwards you can put into context of who he is. See, that's how, that's how it's most useful to develop relationships. You don't really know how to interpret what somebody does unless you know who somebody is. That's why I never read um, um, anonymous mail. Never do. Because I can't interpret what they've said without knowing who they are. And it's important that you understand that it's so important for us to understand the person before the action. And that's exactly what these opening verses do. They center in on the person of God, especially God in Christ, who is described here as the Word. It is so appropriate. Let's, let's kind of go over this hymn together in an attitude of worship. We learn so much more about God. We have so much more accurate theology when it comes out of worship rather than just investigation. And so let's just do this in an attitude of worship. Read with me the first couple of verses. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now I want to describe to you, oh, uh, uh, I'm sorry, let me, let me read the second one uh, also. In the form of Hebrew parallelism, he goes back then and restates a piece of the first. And he was in the beginning with God. Remember that term with God. We'll explain that in just a moment. <clears throat> it begins like this. It begins with this concept of the Logos, which we will later see is Jesus, because it says the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. What is this concept? Well, in the, the understanding of the, of the Greek world, this was the organizing principle of the universe. It wasn't personal, but it was that which was the reason for everything, that which could explain everything. To the Jew, the word was much more personal. It was the expression of God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. And then it says, and God spoke. God spoke, let there be light. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And so to the Jew, it's a very personal speaking of a very personal God for a very pronounced purpose. To a Jew, this concept in wisdom literature isn't just a cold concept. It is a father who runs the universe very well, thank you. And so this speaks to both. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Now let me, let me give you an image here. There is an idiom in the Middle East, prosopon, prosopon, and it literally means face to face. We have the same idiom, face to face. 
But in that country, it's not just, or in that part of the world, it's not just a habit of being able to look at someone and talk. There is an intimacy implied here. There's a communion implied here. There's an equality implied here that comes from that intimacy. One of my professors in seminary, who was an expert in patristic, that's easy for me to say, he was an expert and I can't even pronounce it, patristic theology, the the theology of of the early fathers. Uh, name was Dr. Ashenine, and he was from the Balkans. And Dr. Ashenine, I'll never forget, he always talked with his mouth closed. He's a kind of eccentric guy, so brilliant, he's kind of eccentric. And when he had a conversation with you, it was always something that he wanted you to do, but he would never order it done. He would always talk to you about it, and, and it would just come out. And so I remember he, he would get with me and say, Mr. Hunter, Mr. Hunter. And he'd get right in my face. Well, you know, when you're a Westerner, you need your space. And, but in, in, in the East, unless you can feel somebody's breath, that's not a personal conversation. So he'd say, Mr. Hunter, I want you to write a paper on, and I'd be backing down the hallway like this, you know. But he was just, he was trying to have a personal conversation. That's prosopon, pros, prosopon, face to face. I want you to have this image that God the Father and God the Son would be so intimate that watch this, the breath of God. What is the breath of God? Ruach, the spirit. The breath of God would be their exchange. And the word was with God. You have the triune God communing with himself. And so the word was with God and the word was God. Now, doctrinally, this is very important for you to understand, even though we can't fully comprehend it. So far, these opening verses, this opening verse has attributed to Jesus eternity, equality, and now deity. Now watch this. This is so important because most of the heresies through the ages... And an overwhelming number of the sects, S-E-C-T-S, sects, those break-offs from Orthodox Christianity come out of a misunderstanding of Christ. They do not attribute to him full deity. They attribute to him somewhat of a secondary deity. And, and so it's very important for us to understand what this says when it says, and the word was God. Now, a Jehovah's Witness will come to you and they will say, well, it doesn't have the definite article in there. It doesn't say the word was the God. So what it means is the word was a God. And so Jesus wasn't fully the father. Jesus was secondary to the father. Don't believe that. Let me tell you why. In the first place, if it were to say the word was the God then what the implications would be in the language was that all of God was contained in the Word. And you wouldn't have a triune God. You would just have a radical, monotheistic God that was, that was, that was who was Jesus talking to? You know? And so I can't say the Word was the God. By the same token, you can't supply the Word was a God because then you don't have a triune God. You have, a, you, you, you have more than one God. How many gods are you going to have here? 
And so it is very, it is, and, and besides it doesn't say that. It says exactly what is the truth. The word was God. That is, in, in, it, it, was, it was a triune God. It was both singular and plural at once. Very important for you to understand. It's important because creature can't save creature. Only God can save creature. And if Jesus Christ is our Savior, He must be God. Must be. Very important for us to understand. And so therefore, we have these opening verses. The richest, deepest words ever written in the English language. We can't comprehend them all. But it helps us focus on Him. Now read the next verse with me. Verse 3. It says... All things came into being by Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Now let's spend a little time here. What this means is, and by the way, that's a form of Hebrew parallelism. Uh, In poetry, many times you repeat a line in order to expand it, or or in order to... um, 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 give a different image so that you can see it more clearly. And that's exactly what's happening. But, but there's two different things here that are said that are, that are complementary but necessary to understand. All things came into being by Him. That is to say, He is the sovereign over all the universe. And without Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Now what's this mean? This is very important. Literally in the Greek it says, there is not one Thing that has ever been made that wasn't made by Jesus Christ. One thing. Now let me tell you why that makes a huge difference to your understanding of God. Are there places in your life right now where you think, hmm, there's an accident? Is, is there a place in your life right now where you say, well, I don't think God's paying attention here. I don't think God had anything to do with this. I don't, think, I don't think God really, really has any purpose for this. Because if there is that thinking, it contradicts what Scripture says. Scripture literally says this. Anything that exists in your life has a spiritual origin, a spiritual purpose, and is superintended toward that purpose by Jesus Christ himself. Every bit of your life has meaning. Every bit of your life has purpose. Jesus made it and is using it for His purposes. That means there are no details in life that cannot and should not be dedicated to God. We need to understand that. And so there is this sense in which this this Impersonal. We're, we're, we tend to, in the West, think everything's impersonal. And, and we think in terms of this reason that kind of organized everything, and it's kind of mechanical. No. There are mechanical things, but even the mechanical things are personal. Cornelius Van Til once said, the largest problem we face is to help people understand that the God of reason and the God of faith are the same God. It is important for us to understand 
And what we'll be doing all year long is to show you how every event in your every day is a part of eternity. Most people think they got to die to experience eternity. No. John will explain to us very clearly how eternity is our life. When you come to Jesus Christ, you begin to live in eternity and have the ability to understand eternity every day. And you can see how every day impacts eternity. That's the difference that Jesus Christ makes. Lao Tzu, founder of Taoism, had an interesting image that I think is helpful and reminds me really of of, of Philippians chapter 2 where God emptied himself taking the form of a servant. He said this. He said, water, humbly seeking the lowest place, often goes unnoticed except for the green it leaves on its banks. What that means is that there is a way of creation where the God who creates is intimately involved in what he's created. And that's the picture here. Jesus isn't off somewhere in heaven. Jesus is in what he's created. The purposes of God is in what he's created. He is transcendent of it. He is not confined to it, but he's in it. And he's in our lives. And the Bible goes on to say this. It goes on to say, in him was life. That's what I was just talking about. And that life was the light of men. What does that mean? Well, we will, we will see more how John develops this theme of light. But let me just say just right now. There is a light that is available for all people. And sometimes that light, we don't like that light. You'll see in John chapter 3 where people shy away from that light because it embarrasses them. It exposes them in their sin. And so they run from that light. But there is a light of God that is available to all people. Calvin said, it's like the ability to understand. Whether you use it or not is another matter. There is a light wherein those of us who participate in that light come to a level of life that is, well, let me, let me explain it like this. My, my, my son gave me a, a book. I, I usually get books for Christmas because books are my friends and, and I love to read. And, and my son knows I love classic literature. And so he gave me this, this special volume of Anna Karenina by Leo, uh, Leo Tolstoy. The the beginning sentence of that novel, as you well know, goes like this. Happy families are all alike, but unhappy families are each unhappy in their own way. There is a sense in which there's the life of God that when we live it together, we are brought together. We have a commonality. There's a camaraderie. There's a family. But there is that of sin which takes us to a totally lonely place and makes us feel all alone. That's the darkness. That's the darkness. Problems are all unique because they are isolating. And so from the very beginning, there is this offer of this life 
Now, let me go to, get to the last verse that we're going to explain today. Because this is, I want to spend a little time here. I want to dally a little here. All right? Because this is really where we live. Some of you say, boy, that's all fine. That's all abstract. Thanks very much. But I live in a real world where there are fights every day, where there are problems every day, where I just don't know what to do. As a matter of fact, I'm hanging on to a thread here, and you're explaining to me the philosophical conflict, concept of the Logos. I need a little bit more than that today. Stay with me, all right? Look at that fifth verse. And the light shines in the darkness. Now I want you to see where the author of this gospel has already taken us. He's already taken us all the way from before there was ever any time to the present day. Because this is a present verb. The light shines in the darkness right now. The light shines in the darkness. We just sang, this is my father's world. And though the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet. We just sang that. Light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Now there's a double entendre here in the, in the, in the, in the original language. Some of your versions say, and the darkness couldn't overcome it. You know why? Because there's a war going on. There is a war going on between the light and the dark, between Satan and God. It's not like Zoroastrianism. Zoroaster said that there are basically two, there's a dualistic universe and the devil's always fighting God and they've got fairly equal, equal forces, so, so you're the decider in how that turns out. Don't ever believe that. <laughs> is our God so weak that he has about the same strength as, as Satan? Satan can't do a thing without God. He's on a leash. Satan is a wounded, dying animal. He'll take you out if he can. But he has no power that God does not allow him. But yet there is an adversary who wants to eat your lunch. I, I, I get uh, a lot of magazines, and, I, and I'm not sure how I subscribe to this one. It's called Life at Work, and I don't, know, I don't even remember doing it. But, but I read it, and it's good, and it's about, it's about how you witness in your faith at work. And there was, a, there was a, uh, um, an article in the back of this guy, Stephen Graves, who had gone on his first fishing trip in nowhere land, Alaska. I don't know how many outdoorsmen we got here and how many you like to fish, but, but you know, if you got some money, <clears throat> then you can hire somebody to take you into where nobody lives. And, and, and so there was this spot on this fishing trip. And, and so they went to this plane and they went to this and that, and finally to Kodiak and then finally to Larson Bay. Nobody lives there except Kodiak bears. He said, he said, the bears are as plentiful there as tourists at Disney. <laughs> but it was a fishing trip. And he said after the plane landed, he said he was, and he said, and everybody that goes there has a, what they call a bear guide, a bear guide. And these are natives with guns strapped to both sides of them. And he said, he hopped out of the plane and he started running toward the fishing hole. And he said, this bear guy just reached out, grabbed his neck, jerked him back. And then, in some very choice words, which I cannot repeat here, said, where do you think you're going? And he said, I was going to fish. 
And a bear guide looked at him and said, uh, did you think that the guns are for decoration? <laughs> and he started to explain what was around, and then Stephen began to see what was around. You know, when I read that, I thought, how many people just hop out into their daily schedule? I've got to go to the store, I've got to go to work, I've got to do this. And we have no idea we're surrounded. It's a world of darkness. And there is any number of forces, any number of people who want to eat our lunch, want to eat us. The accuser is a murderer, and he wants to come after us. And so there is this warfare going on that surrounds us, but watch this. The other meaning of this verse is one that is, I believe, of even greater danger. And that's the danger that comes from within. You see, some of your Bibles say, and the darkness did not comprehend it, or the darkness did not understand it. And there's an implication here of kind of a passive-aggressive kind of thing. You know? Yeah, I know, God offers that to me, but that ain't what I need. Because we want something else. You see, when people don't become Christians, it's not usually because they don't understand. It's because they don't want to change their lives. We want something else. And so there is this, there's this sense in which we're drawn toward that darkness by simply not taking the light that we knew, that we know we ultimately want. Let me tell you a story. I'll, I'll, I'll close with this. I love this story. I love John William Smith because we were, <clears throat> I understand his stories. He, he was brought up in a small town like I was. Uh, he was born in the 40s like I was. Um, he was, <clears throat> um, he loves to tell stories like I do. So, um, so I just steal from him every time I can. And, and, he, and he remembers the time when he was a little boy and, uh, and, and Pop was a nickel. Remember, remember when Pop was a nickel? Or some of you called it soda. Those of you who, who, were, who grew up in very well, uh, um, well-trained families called it soda. Uh, we just called it pop. Some of you called it sody pop, but we just called it pop. And, and, and he said he, he, there was a station, a filling station, standard oil station, about a half a mile from where he lived. And it was so cool because this place had concrete floors. And when it got real hot in the summer, there are two things that drew he and Tommy and Freddie Peterson there. One was that, that the concrete floors felt so good on their bare feet because it was so hot. But the other was this Coke. He called it a Coke machine, but you and I remember these things. It was a big red vat that had a top that lifted up with Coca-Cola scrawled on the side. And there was ice and very cold water and the bottles just stood upright. Remember those? And there was different, there was RC Cola, and there was, there was Byerly's Grape, and there was uh, Nesbitt Orange. Some of us had Nehi, but there was Nesbitt Orange. And he said, he used to remember standing in there, and they, they'd, they'd get in there, and they'd reach their hands down that cold water. Oh, that felt so good. And after a while, they, they, everybody knew they couldn't, they didn't have a nickel. They never had a nickel. And so they'd shoo them out. And they weren't mean or anything, but, you know, you just eventually had to get the kids out. But they'd do that every day. 
And every day he'd see these people come in, these grown-ups come in and say, give me a pop. And he just wanted to, he wanted so badly to be able to have a, have a pop, but he never had a nickel. And he used to go home and he'd, he'd used to rehearse what it'd be like to say, give me a pop. Give me a pop. You know, Mr. Bruder was the, was the runner. He'd say, Mr. Bruder, give me a pop, just to himself. And then he'd imagine Mr. Bruder saying, what kind of pop you want? And he'd say, well, I believe I have a Nesbitt orange. And, and he, he just rehearsed this, never had a nickel. He said, now, we went to a very small church, met in a, um, uh, a Masonic lodge in Hazel Park, Michigan. And he said, my daddy was a song leader, and I loved that my daddy was a song leader because he had so much fun leading the songs that it made you want to sing. We got somebody like that, don't we? Just made you want to sing. I said, I love that. He said, I love that. And he said, Brother Utley was the preacher. He was a gentleman. Never yelled at you, but just, you know, he was a shepherd. He, he, was, a, he was a gentleman. He said every, every Sunday we had the same services. We, you know, we'd have the worship and, and then we'd have communion and then they'd take up the offering and they'd pass these baskets with velvet in the bottom so you wouldn't be ashamed if all you had was coins because nobody could hear it. And he said, and they'd take those baskets and they'd put them right, right behind the communion table. Now he said, I don't know when the thought hit me. Whether it was all of a sudden or it just kind of crept in subtle-like. But one Sunday when everybody had gone out after the service to talk, because it was so hot in there, I crept back in. And I went to those offering baskets. And I got me out a nickel. He said, now I didn't take $5. I didn't want $5. I just wanted a nickel for a pop. But I wanted it bad enough to risk hell for it. He said, I stuck it in my pocket. No one ever knew. And the next day, when Tommy and Freddie and I went to Standard Oil, Mr. Bruder's Standard Oil, I walked in like I was going to ask him for a pop. And he said, I opened my mouth. Nothing would come out. He said, and then I tried again, and nothing would come out. He said, you know, I got a little scared. So I went home. That nickel was still in my pocket. And I decided I'd try again the next day. So I went the next day, and I, and I was going to say, Mr. Bruden, give me a pop. And I opened my mouth, and nothing would come out again. He said, now I was downright spooked. And he said, I got so scared on the way home. He said, I know what I'd done. I'd stolen God's money. That was God's nickel. Right out of God's pocket. And it was in my pocket. And he said, I went home and I put that nickel in a shoe and I put it under my bed. And he said, that night I had terrible dreams. I dreamed God came to me and said, where's my nickel? I want my nickel. Well, he said, I was so scared. He said, I woke up in a sweat. He said, God was so real. I was so afraid. I'd done something horrible, and I knew it. He said, I couldn't wait till the next Sunday to get to church and put God's nickel back in offering basket. So he said, he said, man, I was, my family went, and man, I was in, I was just sweating through the whole service. My daddy had got up to sing songs, and he said, I couldn't sing any songs. 
Not like I wanted to. You can't sing with God's nickel in your pocket. <laughs> he said, Brother Utley got up to preach. He said, I can't remember what he said. He said, I was just afraid that at any given moment he was going to stop dead in the middle of his sermon and start looking around going, I believe there's a thief among us. <laughs> and if he had done that, I bet everybody looked at me because everybody knows that kind of thing. Well, he said, we had communion and then, then we had the offering and and he said, I was foiled in my effort because, the, because the, the basket, we were sitting on the front row and the basket came to me first. There wasn't anything in it. He said, now if my mother would have seen me put a nickel in the offering basket, she would have immediately said, where'd you get that nickel? Because <laughs> mothers know how much money you got and they want to know where any extra came from. He said, I couldn't put it in. So there I sat the rest of the service all miserable with God's nickel in my pocket. He said, after the service, just like before, everybody went out because it was so hot in there and I snuck back and he said, I approached that altar like a Jew coming up on the Ark of the Covenant. He said, I was so scared. I was trembling. I knew God could strike me dead at any minute. And he said, I got that nickel out of my pocket and my voice was quivering. And he said, God, I'm so sorry for stealing your nickel. I'll never do that again. In Jesus' name, take back your nickel. And he said, I put it in the offering basket. And he said, I went out of that church running free. I was as forgiven as the worst sinner that had ever lived. I will never forget that day. I was as free as the most guilty convict that had ever spent time in prison. I'll never forget that day. The reason I tell you that story is because we believe in this perfect God that is our Father who in our best moments we wouldn't dream of taking from. But many of us are walking around with his nickel in our pocket. Now I'm not just talking money here. I'm talking thoughts. I'm talking the, the dreams you once had of, of being a witness for God and somehow that got lost because because you didn't think God would miss it. I'm talking about your bodies and what God gave those bodies to you for and, and how you kind of diverted them to pop. I'm talking about just walking around with something you know will not let you get right with God. If you came back to church this year Want to give God's nickel back. Today's the day you can do it. You can, you can get right with God and, and you ought to. Not just because you can feel the forgiveness and the freedom and you, and you, can, you can know what it's, what it's like to be right with God again. But because of who we worship. See, that's what He deserves. And the world will never be right until that's what he gets. Pray with me. God, thanks that you offer us forgiveness and restoration, that you offer us redemption through the word, 
who was with you and is you. Thank you that you offer us life that is free. Thank you that you offer us light that lets us see the world the way it really is and the way it could be. Help us to be a part of the way it could be. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.